This is a Rook Media series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 4. Hi there, and welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is part four, how the Iran-Iraq war benefited Khomeini. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled excerpts with Farsizir Nevis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We're coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms and we invite you to check out parts one, two, and three of this series that are already posted. The Contemporary History of Iran is brought to you in part by Yazdani Law Group. YLG is one of the largest Iranian-Canadian immigration law firms. Their mission, rooted in the leadership of founder Afshin Yazdani, is built on continuously striving to innovate and introduce new immigration pathways for their clients. Afshin began his career as a lawyer and law professor in Iran, and his company has now made it their goal to provide the best, simplest, least risky, and most inexpensive way to immigrate to Canada. YLG has an impressive track record. Hundreds of applications from Iran successfully processed every year. They are at YLGPC on Instagram. That is Yazdani Law Group. All right, let's get started. Here now is the Contemporary History of Iran, Part 4. With the exception of the 1979 revolution itself, there can hardly be a more dire, devastating, and defining event in recent Iranian history than the Iran-Iraq War. That is, the longest conventional war of the 20th century, with a casualty count estimated to be as high as a million lives lost. There are many angles with which to explore the causes and legacy of the Iran-Iraq war, but the timing of the start of the war, only a year and a half into a new Islamic Republic, still finding its footing and structure, surely had major implications for years to come. Indeed, the war may have begun with the 1980 invasion of Iran by Saddam Hussein's Iraq, but it also actually served as a tool and a necessary crisis to rally a divided and suddenly isolated Iranian nation. How much did the new Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini and his regime actually benefit from a war that could be turned into a patriotic and religious national duty? 
And in fact, can it be argued that the consolidation of power by Khomeini and the Islamic formalists in the years during and after the conflict was actually only made possible by an eight-year war? My guest today is an associate professor of history at Northeastern Illinois University and an expert in Persian studies who is no stranger to this particular subject matter. Dr. Matteo Mohamed Farzaneh was born in Ahvaz and immigrated to the United States in 1984 at the age of 17. Before emigrating, he was forced to relocate after Iraq suddenly invaded Iran. And in fact, he spent some time as a volunteer in the Iranian war effort he was 14 years old. Matteo came to America and earned his PhD in 2010 from the University of California, Santa Barbara. He is quadrilingual, speaking Persian, English, Spanish, and Arabic, and the recipient of a number of prestigious awards and fellowships. He taught world and Middle Eastern history at Santa Barbara City College and California State Fullerton before joining Northeastern Illinois University's history faculty in 2010. His first book, The Iranian Constitutional Revolution and the Clerical Leadership of Khorasani, won the National History Honor Society Best First Book Award in 2016. And his latest book that was published just this year is called Iranian Women and Gender in the Iran-Iraq War. And right now, Dr. Matteo Mohammad Farzaneh joins me from Chicago, Illinois today. Hello, sir. Thanks for having me. Hello, and uh, thanks for the invitation, John. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for doing this. I've been um, looking forward to this uh, chat. I've, I've uh, been very interested in reading your book, and, and, it, and it was a, a quality read. And I, I want to actually start with some jargon, if you will, that I took from your book, which is, um, I mean, because words and phrases can tell us a lot. You outline early in your new book that in the initial phase of the Iran-Iraq war, Iranians called it the Jang Tahmili or the imposed war, and then thereafter Khomeini coined it the Defa'i Muqaddas or sacred defense. Now, those monikers are an interesting variation on what we would otherwise know as the Iran Iraq war. What was the value in framing the war that way? Well, as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, Islamic Republic was uh, at its I would say, uh, almost embryonic stage, only 18, 19 months into uh, uh, the new government with after overthrowing the Shah's regime, the Pahlavi regime. So it was uh, paramount for uh, the Islamic Republic to contextualize and to present and to propagandize the defense of Iran, which they saw as defense of the Islamic Republic, in such a way that it would uh, uh, trigger and invoke the emotions of Iranians, uh, those who were uh, diehard patriots, nationalists, if you will, uh, to defend Iran. So for those that were not so uh, attuned to the religious contextualization of the regime, Jang uh, Tahmili or the imposed war worked really well. But since uh, uh, about a year or two into the war, if I'm not mistaken, the Fai Mogaddas or holy or sacred defense uh, uh, became more synonymous with the Iran-Iraq war simply because the type of people that actually volunteered in robes uh, were triggered by their sense of religious nationalism. That's interesting. So it's immediately framed as not just a war, 
but a spiritual, a, a religious, a sacred war, um, which carries a lot of weight in any context, uh, let alone uh, immediately after a revolution. I, I, speaking of context, I want to take a step back. And I mean, I think a lot of people listening would probably know the answer to why this war started. But if you can give it to us in a, in a nutshell and remind us briefly, why did the Iran-Iraq war start? So very briefly, the Iran-Iraq war simply started for a couple of main reasons. There are other reasons, but let me just talk about two main reasons due to the time constraints that we have. So number one, uh, the Islamic Republic's leader, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, was a revolutionary in the sense that he did not accept any of the secular regimes that existed in the Middle East, uh, including uh, his native Iran. He was uh, in exile in Iraq, so he lived under the Ba'ath regime there. And uh, he believed that all monarchical sheikdoms, uh, kingdoms, and sultanates uh, of the Persian Gulf and the Sea of Oman area, uh, the ones on the Red Sea, the ones on the coast of southern Mediterranean, we're talking about Egypt, Libya, and all the other ones, they had to be overthrown simply because they were null and void based on his interpretation of what a true Islamic society should look like, that it should have an Islamic state. So uh, since he talked about that so freely and without any hesitancy, uh, everybody in the region, mostly the Arab states, uh, were extremely uh, concerned about this rhetoric because it did find uh, its own, um, uh, so to speak, um, I would say customers or people that would actually listen to it, its uh, the sympathizers, uh, if you will, in the Arab states. And um, the Arabs uh, essentially in the hands of Saddam Hussein um, helped Saddam Hussein to launch the war against Iran to not only annex uh, Khuzestan, which is the richest province in Iran, but also to maybe uh, you know, within a couple of weeks, that was the plan. Within a couple of weeks, they would march to Tehran and they would topple uh, the Islamic uh, Republic. So that was one reason why the war started. The other reason, I think, was the failed uh, Arab nationalism that was in uh, a state of disarray after the loss of war uh, in the 1967 war between Israel and the Arab states surrounding it. Uh, that dealt a huge blow to the nationalist uh, movement of Arabs, and this seemed as an easy way to get back at someone. And uh, what better state than the Persians, you know, to the east with all the challenges that they were facing uh, to maybe um, deal a huge blow and kind of regain some of that confidence that they had lost in 67. I, I get the jewel of Khuzestan and the, the oil and the attraction of that. Uh, why was Iraq so? Um, why did Iraq have so much bravado? This idea that we're going to march and take uh, Tehran in a, in a couple of weeks. Why was Saddam Hussein so confident of winning a conventional war against Iran? I mean, despite the fact that we know that Iran was in some disorder, uh, this is historically a much bigger and richer country than Iraq. Uh, historically, much more powerful military. Why was there so much confidence on the part of Saddam and, and Iraq? So the, the confidence stems from the fact that Iran at that time was holding uh, 53 Americans as hostages uh, in the American hostage crisis that began in November of 79, and it went on uh, until uh, January of 81. So Iran was in a sort of a sense, it was a pariah state. That was the beginning of Iran becoming a pariah state. 
United States had uh, launched serious uh, economic and military embargoes against Iran. Iranian Imperial Army at Shah Shahi was uh, uh, almost entirely made of British and mostly American arsenal and uh, that embargo uh, hurt the military really bad and uh, Saddam Hussein saw at the time opportune to launch this war because without spare parts for aircrafts and for tanks and for other uh, weaponry, you can't really do an uh, effective defense of any type. So Saddam uh, kind of miscalculated on the part that uh, Iranians and especially Arab Iranians, ethnic Arabs in, in the southwest in Khuzestan would come to his help and when that didn't happen everybody realized that this is uh, going to be more of a serious challenge that they had originally thought. So a combination of anti-American behavior of the Islamic Republic as well as false uh, bravado as you call it by the Ba'ath regime headed by Saddam Hussein uh, essentially let them believe that they can pull this off really quick. So they realize that they're not pulling it off so quick. And there is uh, this to me is is the moment that sort of is the um, is the cornerstone of the conversation we're having today. There's a moment early in the war. Uh, you can correct me if I don't have this correct. It's, it's within the first two months of the war. I think it's like 45, 50 days into the war, where Saddam Hussein signals that he is prepared to make some kind of ceasefire deal to end the war. It is Khomeini who vows to continue the war, quote-unquote, until the infidels are defeated, and says this is for Islam. Obviously, it didn't take long for Khomeini to harness this conflict as a religious cause, as we've said, but uh, even that on the face of it is a little absurd, given that this was about territory, and after all, Iraqis are Muslims too, albeit Sunni. What was Khomeini really doing in that moment? Well, one thing that, um, if we speak very objectively, uh, was that I'm from Ahwaz, like you, you mentioned, and uh, I was I was hurt by the fact that the neighbors attacked and invaded uh, in such a way and uh, made a displaced person out of me personally and, you know, hundreds of thousands of other people. And Khomeini, I think, was no exception to the fact that uh, Iranians in general, we were not happy if anybody was in Iran or outside of Iran, uh, was not happy by, by this terrible action no matter what the reasons behind it, nobody was happy with that. So the sense of, I would say, patriotism, uh, yes, on the part of Ayatollah as well, uh, kind of kicked in. But at the same time, too, if you read various writings of Ayatollah Khomeini, listen to the sermons that he did after the war started, I think he and his helpers saw an opportunity to solidify the Islamic Republic because what uh, a better way to rally the entire population behind any government, it doesn't matter where we're talking about, to rally everybody behind the government because they are seeing uh, a serious threat being launched against their existence. So I think an opportunity also presented itself to the uh, architects and to the runners of the Islamic regime in Tehran, and they took that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, so again, to put this in context, this is still 1980. So for the most part, there's still a lot of chaos going on, right? That the regime has not consolidated. It's not um, figuratively and literally killed off its enemies yet within. Uh, so uh, in this case, Khomeini and the regime are pretty quickly seeing a golden opportunity here. Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, the enemy within that you're talking about 
pretty much uh, the generals or the uh, or lower rank imperial army officers uh, were already killed off or they were put in jail uh, by the time the war started. So part of the confidence that Saddam had thought that the, the people that knew how to war and how to engage in, in professional conventional war, they were either dead or ran away. Well, I'm or, talking about everyone else. I mean, there were still some yeah, well, yeah. liberal nationalists, some some two dead, well, yeah, some businessmen. You know, there were some people hanging around thinking this right. this revolution ain't going to be you know all Islamic, right? Right. Well, that's what I was trying to get at. Uh, and then you had the element of the Mujahideen al or the MEK. The MEK uh, was in an actual armed. Uh, war with the establishment with the Islamic Republic. So you could say there was some sort of a civil uh, uh, war going on inside Tehran and other uh, bigger cities with assassinations, wave of assassinations, bombings, and what have you. So that took away a lot of attention from that and kind of concentrated it uh, to the front lines. And if you look at the war now without wanting to get ahead of myself, but even today, Whatever uh, Iran wants to do, there is that shadow of the enemy that they always use as the boogeyman, that they, you know, the boogeyman, the enemy is going to come and get all of us. Hence, we got to do X, Y, and Z. And right. most of the social welfare programs that they really need the money for is not done and the funds are taken away from it simply because uh, uh, they're putting that into the defense of the regime rather than anything else. You know what? When I was a, a kid at the time when this started, but I remember, and I certainly I remember going through the '80s as I got into my teens and, and hearing hearing about um, kids my own age um, being sent to the front lines of this war. Um, I have to ask you about that. I mean, traditionally, populations might even take their government to task for being ill-prepared or badly prosecuting a war for, or for massive casualties. You know, you see the unrest in the U.S. when, you know, young soldiers start to die in Vietnam, say, for example. Khomeini sold the war effort as somehow messianic. Uh, that this mm-hmm. could be about martyrdom. Tell us about the human waves that were employed as a way of fighting on the front lines. So uh, there is the truth about the war, and then there is the illusion that is made around the truth of the war, if that makes any sense. Meaning the truth was that Iranians saw that Iraqi tanks were on their streets, so they wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to uh, uh, handle that or accept that. So that was the truth. The illusion that was created around it was that if the public doesn't engage because uh, Iran was under uh, serious embargoes, economic and military embargoes, uh, we would lose the war and Arabs would come and conquer them. And uh, because of that uh, Perso-Arabic sort of chauvinism that has existed for a long while between Iranians, uh, Persians and Arabs, uh, nobody could bear the thought of an Arab basically ordering them what to do. And this is street emotions we're talking about, right? So um, in regards to the human waves that you're talking about, yes, uh, people like myself in their early teens, uh, mostly from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, mostly from uh, uh, ghettos, uh, from underdeveloped parts of major cities in Iran. In Tehran, uh, it would be, you know, this southern part of the section of the of the town or the, the southeastern portion of the town, they would come from all sorts of villages, all sorts of rural areas, uh, all sorts of small towns. Uh, a lot of provincial people would engage and their sense of patriotism because of their incredible 
sense of identity as Shiites first, and as Iranians, maybe second or vice versa, it depends on who and what group we're talking about, uh, their sense was that they needed to participate. And Khomeini kind of capitalized on that. And he was very, very sure that these people would come to the defense of Iran, and they proved that that was the case for eight years at least. Not just the defense of Iran, but the defense of his regime then, de facto, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, we say defense of Iran because, in essence, nobody knew at that time, and we still don't know, that if the regime fell, what would happen to Iran? Because nobody can say with a certain amount of certainty if the regime had fallen, if the if Saddam Hussein was successful in his effort to capture Tehran and for the Islamic Republic to fall apart, what would happen in essence? You have an, uh, a megalomaniac like Saddam Hussein that we find out in hindsight, right? Uh, because of his attitude towards everybody and, and his... Uh, and I'm not shy to say that this was a very unstable person when it came to regional politics because of his behavior that we see later on, right. not only during the war with, you know, uh, launching chemical uh, uh, war agents against civilians and soldiers alike, but, you know, what he did in Kuwait and in other places right. or right. his own people. Uh, so, yeah, it was not solely to defend Ayatollah Khomeini or the Islamic Republic, uh, that was not my concern at that time, at the age of 14. My concern was, at the age of 14, I did realize that if, you know, Saddam Hussein or anybody else would come and, you know, uh, take my, you know, my city, my country, uh, what's going to become of it? Uh, but I wasn't sophisticated enough, and most other people were not sophisticated enough to think of civil war or uh, some kind of puppet regime that would come, and God knows what would come after that. What, what were you, I mean, I'm sure you've reflected on this, what were you thinking as a 14-year-old? You know, I was trying to think, there, there's probably not a lot of historians who write about a war having been in the war, but there's probably some, but they usually weren't 14 years old when they, when they volunteered. Mm -hmm. uh, you have an interesting perspective. Have you reflected on the idea that you could have been one of those kids lost in the human waves at the front lines? And what were you thinking in that moment? Oh, absolutely. Uh, my uh, older stepbrother also got involved in the war efforts, and uh, he was captured by the Iraqis, so he served as a prisoner of war in Iraq for eight years. Uh, when that happened, and some of my good friends in high school, because I was in high school at that time, that also volunteered, they, they managed to get to the front lines, and they came back either dead or, uh, um, you know, they lost an eye or, you know, they lost a limb or two or were paralyzed for that matter. Other people that I knew, not necessarily my best friends. So at the age of 16, I kind of decided that this is going to be my future, probably, <laughs> right? And uh, it, it's one of those decisions that was made with a heavy heart because I didn't want to, you know, turn my back against uh, my people, my country. But at the same time, I, I was thinking about it very soberly, that I thought maybe I can help in some other ways. And getting an education, I thought at that time, being naive that, you know, I'm going to go to America, study, and maybe help my people. That, that's why I, I took the initiative of leaving. And uh, to this day, uh, I don't regret that. But at the same time, uh, my comrades that actually stayed and fought in the war in whatever capacity... Um, some are doing okay, but some are not doing very well. They're, they're poor, 
they're disabled, uh, they don't get a lot of attention. So yes, the perspective that I write it, uh, write the book and other books that I'm going to write about the war is unique uh, simply because I saw firsthand what kind of devastation it would have on the society. But more importantly, how my family was broken apart because of that. It was a very, very devastating experience and we're still paying for that. that the war hasn't ended mm. for the families that were involved in the war. That's what people do not realize. Uh, war never ends. Uh, war has an ending uh, uh, period when the last bullet is fired, uh, but the war in the minds of people never ends. But the war could have ended before eight years, um, which is w where I want to go with with this. Uh, you know, even if we accept, even if we were to say, Maybe this wasn't, if we, if we were to give Khomeini the benefit of the doubt and say, this wasn't about seizing an opportunity to consolidate the regime. Uh, uh, this is simply about, it's like any conventional war, we're defending ourselves, albeit sacred defense in this case, uh, because they've come and taken some of our territory. There, there's an incursion into our country. That wasn't true anymore by 1982. We, I mean, we can argue that between 80 and 82, Iraqi forces were on Iranian territory. So driving them out could be that patriotic mission. How do we explain the next six years of the war when Iran is losing young kids, as we've just talked about, suffering economically, internationally isolated, getting constantly hit by Iraq? What was Khomeini's calculation to keep rejecting a solution or ceasefire? Clearly, based on available sources that uh, we have about the war, Khomeini really didn't make much more decisions past the liberation of Khuramshah that took place in 1982, in spring of 1982. Uh, people went to him, uh, Revolution Guards commanders and army commanders went to him. They explained to him that we uh, dislodged the enemy from uh, our biggest town in the southwest, which was extremely important. Uh, the siege of Abadan had been lifted. Uh, another important point, uh, in Dasht Abbas, um, the enemy was driven back almost to the internationally recognized borders of Iran and Iraq. Uh, so from that respect, they kind of asked for a blessing uh, from Ayatollah to end the war. And uh, he made a comment similar to, uh, and I'm rephrasing here, that, you know, I'm going to leave it up to you guys, but remember, all of Iran needs to be liberated, not just this section, because other parts of Iran in the in the western part, in Elam and in Kurdistan, uh, was still taken up by by Iraqi forces. So the the plan became uh, uh, something that seemed attainable. And at one point, I think in eighty three or eighty four, uh, they are able to drive everybody out. But after eighty two, uh, in that meeting, I think Ayatollah Khomeini gave the responsibility of making the decision for the future of the war to the high-level uh, Revolutionary Guards commanders that some of them today are alive and well and are in very powerful positions in Iranian politics. And, and what happened is they made the decisions that they did. And still the jury's out today uh, to basically understand why was it that they did not end the war. Uh, you have different schools of thought on that. One being that, in essence, some of the Revolutionary Guards thought that they would benefit from uh, um, stretching the war in a variety of ways. Some were thinking that if Iraq is 100% out, uh, it needs to abide by Iran's wants. 
which was uh, reparations for the war and the UN Security Council and UN uh, as a body recognizing Iraq as the aggressor. All of these things actually happened, you know, in 88, but as you said, you know, six, five, six years later. So, um, terrible inexperience, I would say. Uh, these military commanders, aside from the regular army commanders that uh, during the Shah's regime up to February 79, they were low-ranking uh, uh, officers, but they had moved up because they had participated in the war and they had shown uh, their merit and their prowess in the battlefield. So, um, they didn't have the kind of experience in war making that if it was a general or a group of generals that had made the same effort in, in defending Iran, uh, uh, they would have probably made a different decision. And with the Revolutionary Guard commanders, these are your street people. These are not people that have gone to military school or to something similar to like the West Point that we have in the United States. So they're, they're not war trained, theoretically speaking. Everything is you know, practical experience, and it's by trial and error, in essence. But other than defeating the enemy and, and retaining the enemy as a as a precipitant, as a cause, as a, as a rallying cry, are you basically saying it was day trading? I mean, they, there was no big, there was no plan no. <laughs> as to how to no. do this for years? No, there was not. Because prior to the date uh, in July, if I'm not mistaken, July of 1988, when uh, Ayatollah Khomeini was asked, uh, th there's a famous meeting and there are photos of that, I think, uh, when the commanders with the president at the time, who was uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, the current supreme leader in Iran with uh, Rafsanjani and everybody else, they went to see Ayatollah Khomeini giving a brief as to what they need. And this is uh, per state's narrative. This is what the government says happened. Again, we don't have all the sources, so we're, we're going by what they're saying. Uh, um, apparently, Ayatollah Khomeini had asked, so what do you guys want Want to do? I mean, what will it take for us to win this war? And people had told him, people present, they had given him a long list of things that they wanted that uh, amounted to, you know, tens of billions of dollars that Iran did not have. And it was not in a position to acquire anywhere. And uh, that said, you know, with a, with a tilted neck, as we say, um, you know, this is what it takes and we don't have the money for it. So the decision was made at that point. He had sent them back to go work out the numbers and come back because he cannot just go to the public and say, okay, the war has ended after all the hoopla that they had made about, you know, we're going to go to Karbala and through there we're going to go capture, right. you know, Jerusalem for the Palestinians and all that uh, rhetoric. Uh, what are we going to tell the public? So Essentially, his wish to continue the war, thinking that the Revolutionary Guards and uh, Army officers could pull it off like they had for eight years, um, didn't pan out the way he had imagined. That's why when he accepted the UN Security Council Resolution 598, um, he was he was devastated. It's like drinking and, poison, or what, what was the famous? Yeah, he's uh, like accepting the resolution, the UN Security Council resolution. It's like uh, drinking from a poison chalice. Right. And uh, and um, <laughs> a short time later, a year later, he dies. Right. I mean, people say that in the house that he lived, things changed dramatically because of his loss of confidence and sort of self, you know, embarrassment as to maybe he did have a reckoning with himself for that year, 
thinking sort of like, what the hell did I do, right? I mean, all of these people dead, their country left devastated. We're not only talking about the Iranians, but also the Iraqis. So you have to look at it from that perspective too. And Iran being extremely weakened. Uh, but one thing that everybody was happy about, I should mention this, was that Iraq did not reach its objective. That's why in the Iranian narrative, uh, Iraq lost and Iran won. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, a million lives lost later. When we when we talk about, in fact, the, about the casualties and the and the the folks that the lives impacted, and we uh, correctly, I think, have to mention the the young people that we did earlier. Um, we're often talking about boys. In fact, uh, the history of this war is is the narrative of of talking about the history of men. Uh, and you've tried to issue a, a corrective uh, with this new book of yours, um, which is to talk about the forgotten people in this war, which were the women, uh, and uh, who played a major, major role, Iranian women, in this war. Uh, you start the book saying, I'm quoting you, for every male who fought in the Iran-Iraq war, at least one, and very likely two, three, or four females helped him to fight it. Um, it's a revelatory fact. Um can you explain what it means? Yeah, I mean, all wars, not just the Iran-Iraq war, uh, all wars, globally speaking, throughout any period in history, uh, is always told from the perspective of males, because they're the ones that do most of the fighting, hence they get all the credit. And if the listeners paid attention, I said most of the fighting, but they get all the credit, meaning... Yeah, they go to the front line by majority they're male. But uh, what happens in the back lines and what happens also on the front lines is that a group of women need to support this war machine. The war is not just battles. The war is an extremely important uh, uh, theatrics that has women involved in it in a variety of roles, Like, and, and the Iran-Iraq war is no exception. Uh, so what I did in the book, since you asked it, I give the number of people that actually died in the war. And I say, okay, so for 225,000 men that died, you can count one mother for each. Maybe they had a sister, grandmother. So there's like three, four times, five times as much women that were actually involved in the war because this guy, let's call him Saeed. Saeed is fighting on the front lines and everybody's fighting with him somewhere else, right? Then, Then you have your prisoners of war, like my family, all of us were fighting the war when when Ali was captured and you know he was held right. uh, for eight years. Uh, when we're talking about uh, the disabled, all of the women that were involved in the war and became disabled, their women fought and they are still fighting because we have, you know, a ton, hundreds of thousands of uh, uh, war veterans that are suffering from one sort of uh, disability, be it physical or mental, and these women have to put up with that. So, yes, um, the wars need to be told from both perspectives. Uh, uh, but but sorry, sorry, sorry to cut you off. It, not, it wasn't just residual um, support. You you also chronicle in the book women on the front lines. Conserva- well, yeah, conservative religious women who hadn't, you know, mixed with men in the past are suddenly sent to the front lines uh, or, you know, their families even send them and, and who are who helped fight the war and died in many cases as well, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I talk about 18 roles that women 
played directly in the war. I talk about women combat fighters. I talk about women uh, uh, first responders, women surgeons, women nurses, women pilots, uh, women photographers, women uh, uh, news uh, uh, people, uh, uh, women that actually uh, became dick gravers and you know did the traditional washing of the dead bodies in the war zone. I mean, all of these are roles that women played. Then a huge number of them uh, created and organized soup kitchens in the in the back lines and in various parts and villages and i kind of sample in the book a variety of group of women from gilan from mazandaran from uh, khorasan from shiraz from you know yaz kerman isfahan and other places uh, from ardabil uh, i basically want people to understand that the war needs to be uh, not only studied but understood that we cannot give all the superlatives, all the nice accolades to only men because mm-hmm. bravery for me is one thing, for somebody else is something else. Uh, the women that actually got involved in the Avaz laundry facility, which was one of the biggest repair and laundry facilities uh, in the war that operated entirely by women for eight years as volunteers. I discussed these women and yeah. Even in Iran, a lot of people have not heard of uh, these women. They actually sustained injuries, chemical war injuries, because they were washing, they were washing uh, uniforms and, and bed sheets of gurneys and boots of uh, the dead that were brought in for them to repair and to wash and to send back for soldiers. So, yes, these women absolutely deserve to yeah. be recognized for their patriotism recognized for their prowess and at the same time let me just uh, put this uh, uh, out there too for your listeners is that these women that actually participate in all these roles previous to the regime's change most of these women would not be able to travel on their own from their village to the next village and that's very very important because all of the sudden that sense of patriotism be it secular or uh, uh, religious kind of kicks in and it allows the families to actually allow their women to participate in something as crucial, as deadly, as violent as war. And that's really significant. And that's yeah. the part of Iranian history that has been missed. I mean, you, you talk about that moment. Uh, you go to a memorial in, in back in, this is in 2009 now, you're doing research right. for this book, and you see a memorial uh, for victims of the war or folks who were involved in the war and and it's a, an entire wall of faces and, and and it's all it's all men women have been written out of it uh, right. or, or, or or forgotten uh, and the impact of of seeing that because you of course would have seen the women when you were there even when you were 14 right the the effect of that experience I mean I talk about it in, in my preface to the book it's a short preface uh, so uh, yeah, I saw many, many women that not only gave their gold bangles, which was the only thing they had materially, right? But they would bring in, you know, uncooked rice, you know, a dozen eggs, some beans, the candelabras, you know, that they had gotten as gifts, silver candelabras for their wedding. And they would bring it and donate that. Uh, then then you would see in Khoramshar, I have the stories of many, many women that participated in combat when the war actually happened. I have the stories of women in Abadan 
that engage in combat and many, many other responsibilities that they take on as first responders, nurses, and what have you. And yes, these are true stories. Uh, the stories are being uh, reconceptualized uh, uh, by a historian and uh, written in a hopefully easy way for everybody to appreciate. And beside the Iranians that you know might be interested in this book, uh, uh, the crowd that is reading it and enjoying it are people that uh, are in women and gender studies or people that are concerned in general about the state of women in the world. And uh, they're learning about Iranian women because what they've been hearing uh, through various propagandistic uh, sort of uh, way in, in the West is that Iranian women, Muslim women are weak, you know, they're meek, um, they're incapable, uh, nobody lets them do anything. And this book actually turns all that argument upside down. You know, if we think about the focus of this um, of today's episode and the the title, and talking about the Iran Iraq War and how it was uh, used or how it benefited uh, Khomeini or helped consolidate that regime, um, women are a part of this too. Khomeini was keenly aware, as you describe in your book, that he needed women on side for the war. How did he accomplish that, and what did enlisting and engaging women in the Iran-Iraq War do for his fledgling regime in the early 80s? So it's interesting because once the revolution is successful in February of 79, in March of that year and a short time after, you have the uh, Women's March that you know Iranian women come out protesting, making sure that they're not going to wear the hijab by force. Right. And there was, you know, starting to talk about the, you know, taking a personal space of women by making them interior beings or zanana and daruni, we call them, right? That they need to go back home. They need to go on top of the, you know, uh, by the by the top of the stove and, you know, cook and reproduce children and be, you know, happy married women, right? And what happens is the war happens and all of a sudden everybody that was uh, uh, in agreement with what uh, the Islamic regime wanted to do, realized that without women, they're not going to be able to win this war. In essence, something that the Islamic Republic wanted was to eliminate or uh, deeply marginalize the participation of women in civil affairs. All of a sudden, with this national crisis that is created, they do realize that without women, they're not going to win this war. And we're not just talking about women that are participants directly, but without their support of their men that would go to the front lines. I mean, it comes to the to the idea of uh, family issues, right? You're going to leave and you're the husband and you have like, say, four kids or you have three kids and, and your wife is not a working person uh, uh, or maybe she has lost her job due to the fact that, you know, they've eliminated, you know, women's positions in various organizations. So who's going to provide for these women? Right? So all of a sudden, everybody realizes that they're going to have to depend on these women because they would have to take care of the family while the man is gone. So in some sense, the the uh, expression of gender in the Iran-Iraq war actually changes for the better. And that's one thing a lot of people don't realize is that the war was a window of opportunity for even the most conservative woman that would could never imagine participating in anything. It allowed them to participate. And if you look at the Iranian society today and its women, uh, I claim 
and that's the subject of my future work, I claim that the Iran-Iraq war gave Iranian women the confidence that they are capable in a variety of ways to not only participate, but to effectively change the course of history in Iran. And that's extremely important. Moving forward... I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about um, mostly about those who were not the um, urban... Uh, emancipated, educated uh, folks before the revolution, yes. right? Yes, you're I'm talking, talking about, about the, uh, the strand of society that's more working class or poor, that are right. more religious, that are certainly come from more conservative families, and this equation is just is changed through the participation in the war. Absolutely, and and another thing to add to that, Jean, is those women that I call them the mighty and the marginalized. Uh, in essence, because of their involvement, because of their participation in university education right now, uh, they give a true uh, a spectrum, a true portrait of the Iranian woman, in essence. And what I say is, and I talk about this in part of the book, what we had before the Islamic Republic, and by no way am I crediting the Islamic Republic for doing this intentionally. This was by default. They get lucky, and this kind of works out this way. What happens is Iranian women now are participating from all walks of life in a variety of degrees, and that basically did not happen prior to the 79 revolution. You know, I, I remember, again, uh, as a teenager, uh, when the war was coming to its end or when it was you know, continuing, that... It was really after those that first year or two. It was certainly off the the front pages of, of any uh, journals or newspapers or headlines in 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 the West. I mean, you'd almost you know I say this with some shame, given that there were people who were back in Iran, you know, dying or having to deal with a war effort um, or and all the consequences of it. Uh, but you know, you, you know, we'd sort of forget about it. I mean, forget that it was even happening. And 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 of course, I'm I'm not unique in this. I mean, as the years went by, the Iran-Iraq War not only became the longest war of the 20th century; it also became known as the Forgotten War for mm-hmm. most of the world because the world was turning its attention to other areas. How did that impact the Islamic Republic and Khomeini's ability to retain and maintain power? Well, in, in essence, the reason why it's a forgotten war, because as we understood more later, uh, the United States effectively after 1986 offered a lot of assistance to Saddam Hussein because they realized if Iran would win the war, it would be a catastrophic uh, thing for the Middle East because then the same thing that's happening now with the Shiite majority in Iraq kind of looking towards Iran uh, and, and they're kind of in cahoots with the regime there. <laughs> they thought it's going to happen then. We're talking about 86, 87, 88. So in, in that sense, uh, Iran was enjoying, in some sense, that opportunity. It never came to full fruition because Reagan and, and then uh, um, after him, um, uh, George uh, Herbert Walker Bush, uh, Bush Sr., uh, uh, made sure that that would never happen. They would never allow Iran to win any war in the region. Going back to your question, though, um, I think the Islamic Republic, because of its solidification during the Iran-Iraq war, used that and the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps 
سپای پاسداران which uh, more and more is taking an active role not only in defense but with the current presence of uh, uh, Raisi in sure, Iran sure. it's becoming yeah. more and more powerful uh, in social and economic spheres even more than before so how, how we can use this information of the war and why is it that we're not even studying it Uh, um, it should make us pause for a second and realize that if we want to understand about the behavior of the Islamic Republic in any way, you should first understand the war and how it actually worked. What were the details of it? How were the decisions made? Because it is through the implicit and the explicit that you actually understand and read about the war that you realize how Khomeini used this as a solidification uh, uh, instrument to allow the Islamic Republic to grow to what it was till 1989 when he died. And uh, afterwards, uh, the current Supreme Leader did exactly the same thing. They, so the Iran-Iraq war in some ways uh, uh, is a manual for success in so many ways for Iranian regime. You know, um, I can't remember where I, if I read it in your words somewhere or if you talked about this at some point I, I saw in the research, but there's a moment you talk about the fact that um, I find this quite sad that, you know, Iranians uh, are hesitant to talk about and tell the stories of people who fought in the war um, for fear of, um, uh, I mean, those of us who, uh, folks who are um, not fond of the current regime or or right. tra- traumatized by it, uh, mm-hmm. for, for fear of somehow canonizing uh, you, you know the regime, or or suggesting that those who fought for the war were might have been sympathetic to the regime, and therefore the the, the storyteller is or, or the recounter is. Um, it's such a it's such a difficult Rubik's cube of of mm-hmm. uh, you, you know we're talking about humans who thought they were doing the right thing to defend their country. Uh, um, h- how do you grapple with that as a historian? Uh, as a historian, we are trained to think objectively and to compartmentalize. It's not an easy thing to do. Like you said, if you're traumatized by any historical event, chances are if you want to study it, research it, and, and judge it, because that's what we do. Historians are, are judges of past uh, experience and past events. If you try your earnest and you keep telling yourself that you have to compartmentalize, you cannot mix issues together. Otherwise, you're not going to get the story out. Otherwise, you're not going to understand exactly what happened. It is a shame that uh, a lot of our uh, uh, compatriots cannot do that because of the amount of hurt that they're experiencing. And I'm, and I'm with them on that. Uh, I am hurt also because of the war, like I told you. Uh, because of my brother and, and our family, you know, falling apart and forced migration and all that stuff. So in, in that regard, if if anything, people that haven't been directly affected, I really don't see the reason why they cannot or they, sh- you know, they don't want to give credit where credit is due, right? Uh, the woman that I describe, I wouldn't necessarily say that we can be best friends, although I've become very good friends with some of them. Uh, with some of the men that helped me in the research, we don't see eye to eye on you know on most things that it comes to Iranian affairs, but that's okay because uh, I'm not a politician, I'm not running for office, I'm not trying to change any government or influence uh, uh, anyone in that sense. I'm a historian and 
what Iranians need and what all peoples of the world uh, uh, need is to know varying uh, or uh, the variety of perspectives on any given event. And what we do, we just provide an opportunity for them to learn from it. You know, uh, from before I let you go, from the from the standpoint of today, and the perspective that you've shared in terms of um, what this meant for for Iranian politics, geopolitics, uh, power. Talk to me about the the mythology that has been built around the Iran Iraq War. There are, especially those sort of hardline Revolutionary Guard. Um, types invoke the Iran-Iraq war today as some kind of foundational myth. Can you speak to that? Well, yeah. I mean, we when was it? It was in January 2020 that uh, General Qasem Soleimani was assassinated in Iraq, right? And if you look at his uh, life story, uh, you see that, you know, he came from very, you know, low socioeconomic background uh, from Kerman or outside of Kerman. So he was a provincial guy. He grew up in the war. Uh, if you have an opportunity to talk to commanders uh, at any level of the war, even today, most of you will tell you that some of them actually got their puberty when they were on the front lines, which is an incredible story by itself, right? right? Mm-hmm. And and some of them actually grew up. They started to sprout mustaches. They started to feel love. They they fell in love. And I do have some of those love stories in in the book yes. uh, with women that actually fall in love with these uh, the variety of the commanders and soldiers fighters. So in some ways, it's it's not really romanticizing, and I don't romanticize it. It's the reality of the war that because it was so long. And because it was so poignant to the fact that it involved so many uh, uh, groups of Iranians, it has become part of our identity, but we refuse to accept that because the narrative of the Iran-Iraq war has been sort of taken hostage by the Islamic Republic. It's their story. And in this book, I've tried to make it, it's our story, right? It's, it's your story, Jian, and anybody who's listening to this uh, podcast, you have to realize the great majority of us who left the country was actually because of this war. I was not a political person. Uh, I didn't leave because there were no opportunities for me. Uh, uh, I didn't come from uh, a background that would be deemed as, you know, not workable with what the government wanted to do or the vision that it had. So in some sense, I left because I saw my friends dying and my own family was torn apart because of, you know, the capturing of my brother. So I thought that I have to leave. Millions of Iranians have the same stories. And it's really sad, like you say, that uh, we tend to ignore that. And But part of that is great hurt that we're all feeling. And I hope that one day, uh, we come to realize and we become mature enough to say, you know, let's not mix things together. Let's not mix our emotions or personal experiences with actually what happened. Because once you understand the truth, it's a lot harder for you to hate, for you to judge, and for you to make these crazy plans that some of my expat communities making about the future of Iran, which is not short of, you know, a huge breakup of the whole, the entire country. So in, in that regard, I think if the Islamic Republic has taken the initiative to take the war as its own narrative, it's only incumbent upon historians and the like 
to kind of take it back. And that's what I've tried to do here. Professor Matteo Mohamed Farzana, I thank you very much for this today. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Dr. Matteo Mohamed Farzaneh, an associate professor of history at Northeastern Illinois University and an expert in Persian studies. His latest book is entitled Iranian Women and Gender in the Iran-Iraq War. We reached Matteo Farzaneh in Chicago today. This is full time for the Rook series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 4, brought to you in part by Yazdani Law Group, one of Canada's largest immigration law firms, YLGPC, on Instagram. Please check out our regular editions of Rook and all things related at rookmedia.com. That is our website, rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who make Rook Media happen. Producer Susan, Ponce of the Artist, the fabulous Keon, Super Patty Saw, Savvy Roham, Aray Merdad, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe on any or all of our platforms if you've not done so already. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Gian Gomeshi. Mizun Bashina.